I was a kid, if we wanted to watch sports on television, we had to wait for the weekends. We didn't have, back in those days, ESPN or the NFL Network. Mike, what we had, we had ABC, CBS, NBC, and, and don't forget PBS. PBS. And Ken, I'm assuming they didn't have sports on PBS, right? Yeah, they had intellectual sports. Oh, there you go. For, like the, thoughtful, chess. for the thoughtful person. <laughs> right. But, you know, one of my favorite shows growing up was Wide World of Sports. Ah, yes. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. That's the one. You know, in fact, I think it was on Wide World of Sports where I first heard the name Willie Moscone. Willie Moscone, I like that name. Being Willie a Ron Kelly, I, I feel like that's got to be Italian. I mean, it may yeah. not be, but it sounds like it to me. Now, he was the pool player, right? That's right. You know, and he would, he would play all these, these matches and do all these tricks and, and things like that. You know, he was a, a pool shark. But, Mike, Ooh, did yeah. you know something that has always fascinated me about playing pool? Hmm. What's that? Is it the little chalk squares you rub on the end of the pool cue? I mean, <laughs> yeah. those yeah. are always a – or that, that thing that you use you know, to hold the stick. Have you, that, I don't know what that little pronged – there's a like a triangle. No. Yeah, no. There's a little. It's it's a little. It's an extra stick that's got I a thing don't know on the what end. That's called. I don't How do either. we know what the chalk squares are called? Uh, but there I'm you go. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating. No, no, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating yeah. things about pool. I'm sure we'll get an email. Somebody uh, asking us to dig more into this. all of our billiards fans. <laughs> exactly. No, what what I what really fascinates me though is the break. So oh yeah, you, yeah. You have the triangle. Mm-hmm. You put put 15 balls in, in the triangle, and you line up your cue ball and you fire the cue ball at them. And every time they go in a different direction, no two breaks are alike. And it appears random, but it's actually not. Yeah, well, Ken, I went to Colorado School of Mines, mm-hmm. science background, and I will tell you, I had, to, I had to take a couple classes on physics, Yeah, and this is not at all random. It right. just appears to be random. Mm-hmm. It's not at all. Mm-hmm. What appears to be random is actually something that happens based on the law of physics. That's right. You have factors like the speed and angle of the cue ball. Uh, it sets in motion the outcome. And it happens so fast that to the, to the naked eye, it appears to be random. But if a scientist knew ahead of time the details of the speed, the angle, they could actually predict where the balls ended up. Absolutely. I had to do lots of equations on that. So mm-hmm. when we return, we're going to explore a story where it appears that Jesus performs a random act of kindness. What appears to be unpredictable is actually God at work. Hello and welcome to Jesus Changes People, a podcast that seeks to uncover the real Jesus and what it means to be a modern-day follower of Him. Each week, we dive into different parts of Jesus' life and His teachings. Some of it may be familiar to you, and some of it, well, it might be weird. But our goal each week is to help you know Jesus better and to become more like Him. My name is Mike Ronkelia, and I serve as the online campus pastor at Mountain View Christian Church in Denver, Colorado, and I am joined today by Ken Hensley, our senior pastor and co-host of this podcast. When it comes to matters of faith, I found that people often ask the same questions, and there are two of them. Why me and why now? And don't forget, why not me? Oh yeah, and also, Ken, why not now? Mm-hmm. Trying to understand how and why God makes a decision has confused people for a long time. It sure has. Now, even the Apostle Paul himself, he once wrote, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or as God told Isaiah in chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. On the surface, it might appear to be random, to not have any logical reason. But we know, Mike, that God does not act that way. No, he doesn't. He always acts with purpose. Even when we don't understand it, he's acting with purpose. Like when he allowed the Israelites to be enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Right, Ken, or also when he promised Abraham and Sarah they would have a son, and then they waited for years before giving them a child. You know, the man that, that Jesus heals in today's story, we learned that he had been physically disabled for 38 years. Why does Jesus heal him on that day, on this day, and not the day before? And why him when there was hundreds others, maybe even thousands, or other needy people in the same area? Hmm. On today's episode of Jesus Changes People, we're going to talk about God's power and his sense of timing. Torchbearers International was born out of the devastation of World War II. Major Ian Thomas, having returned from the war, decided to open his home to the young people of Europe. Along with his wife, Joan, they taught about the indwelling life of Christ. Soon these guests began to discover the adventure of knowing Jesus Christ on a personal level. The dynamic reality of the Christian life began to rekindle the lives of hundreds from all over Europe, first in Germany and then in Austria. Today, Torchbearers has 25 centers located around the world. We have one right here in Colorado. And these centers are dedicated to the teaching and preaching of the saving, indwelling, and transforming life of Christ in the believer. To learn more, go to torchbearers.org. That's torchbearers.org. Jesus was a man on the move. At the beginning of John chapter 4, he's in Samaria. By the end of chapter 4, he's back in Cana of Galilee. And Mike, where do we find him at the start of chapter 5? Well, Ken, he's back in Jerusalem, and I'll tell you what, that's a lot of walking. Just from Cana to Jerusalem, it's around, oh, I don't know, give or take 60 miles or so. <laughs> well, Mike, did you know the average person walks at a pace of about 3 or 4 miles per hour? Jeez. So with no stops, that would be a 15-hour journey. Yeah, and we're doing math again. That's, that's a problem. I think mm -hmm. we've been hitting up the speak in math. But I know. I'm thinking he probably stopped a few times. That's with, probably with... a good guess. <laughs> probably stopped a few times. But, but at any rate, it would have taken Jesus two or three days to get back to Jerusalem. And exactly why was Jesus coming back to Jerusalem? Well, Ken, all we know is that it was time for one of the Jewish festivals. And John doesn't mention which one it is. He doesn't, he doesn't give reference to the one that they're celebrating. No, no, he doesn't. And the last time that Jesus was in town for a festival, it was in chapter 2, and it was for Passover. Yes, and that was when he cleared the temple, which we've talked about before, JesusChangesPeople.com. Well, who, who could forget that trip? Right. Yeah, it was a good one. Not, but not to skip too far ahead, we also know that at the start of chapter 6, that's also the time for Passover festival again. And so that would mean approximately a year has gone by since the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 5. That's a good point. We can assume that a lot has happened in those 12 months. So let's tell our listeners what happens in chapter 5. Oh, definitely, Ken. So we'll do, we'll do that right now. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and finds his way to a certain pool. In Aramaic, the language of Jesus' day, this pool was called Bethesda. It was, it was quite a scene too, wasn't it? Yes, it was. The, the, the Apostle John tells us that there are a great number of disabled people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. What he doesn't tell us is how many are included. 
He just says there's a great number. Hmm. But, but we can assume it's probably in the hundreds. Wow. But, but Jesus, and here's what's incredible. He decides to focus on just one person. Yeah, he does. It's really interesting. He sees a man who had been an invalid for a very long time, 38 years to be exact, out of all the people. He chooses him, and he, he could have talked to anybody, but out of all the people, he talked to this guy, mm-hmm. and, and he picks this guy. Yeah. You know, Mike, one side note. Jesus did not automatically know all the details of this man's condition. Hmm. The text tells us in chapter 5 that Jesus learned about this man's condition. Do you find that interesting? Oh, I definitely do. There, there are times in the Gospels when it says that Jesus knew what a person was thinking, and there are times when Jesus asks sincere questions in order to learn things, and he doesn't know that here. Right, so, so he learns about the man's condition. And then he asks something that, that to us seems like a strange question. You know, given the fact that the man had been like this for 38 years, he asked the man if he wants to get well. What, what do you make of that? Well, on the surface, it might seem strange, but it's actually a very insightful question, I think. Well, you know, you would expect an insightful question from Jesus. I, I would, definitely, for sure. And it, it is an insightful question. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't assume that the man necessarily wants to get healed, which is mm-hmm. one more reason why Jesus is the smartest person who ever li- lived, definitely. He, mm-hmm. he understands human nature. Right. And, and what we know about human nature is not everybody wants to change. Some people become comfortable with their condition, even when it's harmful to them. Yep, not every person who is an addict wants to stop being an addict. Right, and we're going to talk more about this later, but it's an important point. God can change anyone who wants to be changed. That's right. He doesn't force change upon people. He looks to have them Mm -hmm. participate in that change. And so this man throws every excuse at Jesus. We see this in the story as he tells Jesus every reason why he shouldn't be healed. Yeah, But, but it's almost like Jesus isn't listening to him. He doesn't respond to his excuses. He doesn't argue with them. Even better, he doesn't walk away and go to someone else. <laughs> if I was Jesus, which I'm not, yes. <laughs> I would probably have been tempted to walk away. Yeah, me, me too. Like, adios, adios, amigo. Right, right. Uh, I'm here to help, but, but see ya. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, but, you, you but really that's don't not Jesus, it. is it? No. Nope. You know, he tells the man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And I read stuff like this, and sometimes I think we read the Bible like it's black lines on white paper, mm-hmm. and we, we don't put ourselves in the story. But when you put yourself in the story, it, I begin to wonder, what did Jesus sound like when he said that? Was yeah. it powerful? Was it tender? Was it, mm-hmm. you know, like how did Jesus sound when he spoke those words? Right. You know, we, we can only imagine. But, but what we do know is that the man is cured at once. There's no rehab involved. It's just an instant healing. And I love this too, Ken. This guy didn't waste time. He picked <laughs> up his mat. And he walked. For the first time in 38 years. Right, right. No more excuses, no more whining about, I have no one to help me. He, mm-hmm. He's gotten help. Yeah. I think he, he might have did a little bit of leaping and jumping and praising God, uh, like the guy that Peter and John healed in the book of Acts. Kind, kind of a Lord of the Dance moment, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not mm-hmm. quite, but, but, but hopefully it would be something of that yeah. magnitude. So um, I'm sure we'll see next week. Not everybody is happy about what Jesus has done, though. That's in our next episode. That's right. In the next episode, we're going to find some people who aren't too happy. Uh, you know, some people, Mike, they have the spiritual gift of poo-pooing everything. <laughs> That's a spiritual gift. It's, yeah. it's found in the Bible. Uh, when we return, we're going to discuss God's timing in more detail. Archaeology is the science of digging up history. Biblical archaeologists are those who specialize in researching the history of the Bible by excavating sites mentioned in the Bible. 
But one of the most important archaeological finds of the 20th century wasn't discovered by a researcher, scientist, or scholar, but by a young shepherd, as in someone who tends the sheep. The first fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a cave in 1947. Over the next nine years, 900 scrolls and fragments would be found, including every book of the Hebrew Bible except for Esther and Nehemiah. Why are these scrolls and fragments important? Though they are nearly 1,000 years older than the previous manuscripts of the Old Testament, they are nearly identical in many respects, giving us today even greater confidence in the reliability of the Bible. In the gospel, the most common miracle Jesus performs is healing. Jesus heals children, he heals adults, he heals people with chronic illnesses, and he heals those who are injured immediately after it happens. And he also heals people who come to him in faith, and he heals people who still have doubts. It's a long list of people, the blind, deaf, crippled, lepers, and demon-possessed. Jesus even heals dead people by bringing them back to life. That's right. You know, speaking of lepers, Jesus heals grateful people and even people who won't return and say thank you. Right, which there's the, that's the story of the ten lepers and, mm-hmm. and all of them but one. Come, one comes back to say thank you and mm-hmm. the others don't. And he heals in a variety of different ways, like today's story. He often healed people by just telling them they were healed. In other cases, he touched them or had them do something. Some of the people that Jesus healed were healed instantly. Others were healed over a period of time. And some of them, like the Apostle Paul, would pray for healing and not be fully restored until meeting Jesus in heaven. Right, Ken, you're talking about the time when Paul asked Jesus to remove the thorn in his flesh, correct? That's right. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says he pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from him. But instead, God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, Ken, this reminds me of why some people get frustrated with Jesus. Why is that, Mike? Well, you can't make Jesus do what you want him to do, (laughs) much less when you want him to do it, like we talked about (laughs) earlier. So you you can't get him to do what you want him to do and when you want him to. That that can be very frustrating. And, And like many of our listeners, I've experienced the instant healing of Jesus. I've also seen his work produce change in me over time. And I also know that there are going to be some things that aren't going to be fully restored until I meet Jesus in heaven. Now, Ken, I believe there's a theological term that describes this, and mm-hmm. that is, is a theological term called the sovereignty of God. Well, well, guess who's in seminary? <laughs> yep, not really. <laughs> I guess kind of. I don't, know that, I don't know that I've studied that word yet. You've but been in seminary. I have been. I still am. <laughs> On a little bit of a break. That's but, right. That's right. Paying a lot of money to learn big words about mm-hmm. sovereignty and things of that nature. So the concept of sovereignty of God is pretty big, though. And here's the simplest definition I found. God is in control. I like that. Even when we may not understand what God is doing. Yep, or what he's not doing, for that matter. We we can always trust that there's a reason why. And God always has our best interest at heart. Yep, Jesus healed the invalid man, and and, and he healed him when he needed to be healed, not Mm. a moment sooner and not a moment later. That's right. God is in control. The man waited 38 years. And after 38 years, he finally meets Jesus. No matter how long you might be dealing with a problem, don't stop asking God for an answer. That's right. Don't stop praying for the people in your life. Don't stop showing up before God. 
Ever feel anxious? Our friend Steve Cuss, that's, that's right, as in cuss words, has a wonderful podcast entitled Managing Leadership Anxiety. Each week, his podcast will feature tools to de-escalate anxiety and also features guests who discuss triggers, recurring patterns, group dynamics, and systems theory. If you want to learn how to pay attention to what is going on under the surface and move into healthier leadership, whether you are a business owner, nonprofit leader, or pastor, or even parent, this podcast is for you. Search for Managing Leadership Anxiety with Steve Cuss wherever podcasts are found. A few years ago, I read a wonderful book by Martin Seligman, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. It was entitled Learned Optimism. His basic argument is that no one is born an optimist or pessimist, but that we learn to be one or the other. Ken, that's definitely definitely interesting for sure, and, and I just have to do it. Seligman. Mm, Seligman. Seligman. That's definitely... Martin. Martin, Martin Seligman. Definitely another mm-hmm. one of those challenging words. But yeah. anyways, tell us more about that. Well... We might think that pessimism is the opposite of optimism, but not exactly. The opposite of optimism is helplessness. It's the feeling that nothing can be done about our situation. This feeling of helplessness leads to pessimism. Now, Ken, from a biblical perspective, are we really all helpless? Aren't we? I mean, we definitely are, right? I would say yes and no. Okay. And in terms of if you're talking about saving ourselves, we are 100% helpless. There's nothing that we can do to add to, to earn our salvation. But Mike, God also designed us with the capacity to think, to make decisions, and to take action. It's that side of helplessness that we see in today's story, isn't it? It is. The man had been an invalid for 38 years. But at some point, the paralysis had moved from his body to his spirit. Right, right. And that's when his sense of helplessness now became pessimism. Exactly. Martin Seligman talks about three factors that contribute to pessimistic thinking. The first one, Mike, is when we take failures and setbacks personally. Not every bad thing, however, that happens to us is our own fault. So some of those are, Ken. Yes, they are. And that's why we practice repentance. But not every bad situation or circumstance is our fault. The second factor that he talks about is what he calls pervasiveness. As in persevere? Similar. Okay. Uh, Here's an example of something becoming pervasive. I did bad on this math test. I must be a bad student. Hmm. It's taking one isolated incident and then blowing it out of proportion. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I've experienced that in Mm -hmm. my own life and in others. And so definitely see Mm -hmm. that. So what's the third factor, Ken? Well, the third factor is when you take a negative experience or circumstance and you make it permanent. Hmm. The optimist would say, I did bad on this math test, but I'm not a bad student. I didn't study enough, and I'll get better grades next time when I study more. Well, that's helpful for all the optimists, but what, yeah. what, is the, what does the well, pessimist say? <laughs> the pessimist says, I did bad on this test, I'm a bad student, and I will, and here's the key, mm-hmm. always be a bad student. Mm, mm, mm. Like when a couple breaks up and one says to the other, no one will ever love me again when, when they say that to themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they, they have a, a bad situation, and, and they must be a bad person, and no one will ever love them. 
That's an example of a good example of taking one experience and making it your permanent reality. If, if we practice, though, Mike, these three factors long enough of personalization, mm-hmm. you know, of yep. pervasiveness, of permanence, if we practice them long enough, here's what happens. We learn to be helpless. Yep. Yep, and, I, and I'm definitely seeing what you mean, you're meaning here, Ken, and, and how this ties into our story, because Jesus actually goes to this man and he says, do you want to get well? Hmm. And he didn't immediately say yes or no. So he had some of this, what you've been talking about, yeah. these different issues. And he responded with all these ways he learned to be helpless, and it, right. had, it had invaded his personhood. Yeah, bingo. You know, our, our tendency as people is to always focus on the things we can't control. Hmm. And we forget, though... There's things we can control. Right, Ken. Just like when we learn to be optimistic or learn to be helpless, we can also learn to walk in faith, can't we? Absolutely. Each week, we dive into questions from you, our listeners. Yay, this is always so fun. Ken, our question today has to do with, are you ready? Okay. Childbirth. (laughs) Mike, I'm not sure what two guys can really add to that discussion. Well, that's what I was thinking, but it's actually really more about the idea of birthright. Mm. But, But yeah, I was like, if this is a question about, you know, skills of childbirth, I think. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'm qualified, but anyway, again, birthright is connected to childbirth. And the question we have today, Ken, is what does it mean in the old Testament when it talks about a birthright? (laughs) I'm actually relieved. You know, that, that's a much better, better than answering a question about childbirth. Right. Our, our listeners correct that the idea of child, of birthright is mentioned several times in the old Testament. Like other cultures, the Jewish people, they gave great honor and privilege to the person's, a family's mm-hmm. firstborn son. It also came, Mike, with great responsibility. Oh, definitely. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It, it almost happens in our culture today. But mm-hmm. when the father of the family died, the firstborn son was expected to assume the leadership of the family. In the case of a king, this also included becoming the next king. Yeah, and as for the firstborn son... That their birthright also included receiving twice the amount of inheritance Ooh, as nice. as the other sons. Nice, I, I mean, I yeah, I, 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 firstborn might be a good thing, but That's right. But what about if they had multiple sons by multiple wives? Because that was common in the in it the was. Old Testament. The, the birthright would always go to the firstborn son, regardless of which wife was the mother. So the very very firstborn of whichever one of of, of a wife. Because of a wife. one point of clarification, right. This didn't apply if the mother was a concubine or a slave. The son had to be from a legal wife. Right. So it would be a legal wife and the very first, first son. son of a legal wife mm-hmm. that was born is the first one. So he could have a bunch of kids by a bunch of sons by a concubine or a slave, and those don't count. It's Correct. when the first legal wife has a son. The first son from the first legal Don't wife. you feel like Abbott and Costello? Who's on first base? Not quite. <laughs> no, close. 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 This, this is good stuff. So, um, and, and it, you know what else we haven't even talked about, Ken? What's that? Esau. <laughs> Man, Esau really liked that red stew. He's really, really hungry. Really red stew. <laughs> but, but we'll have to save that story, Mike, for another day. Right, right. We, we have appointments and, and schedules to keep. So if you have questions or comments that you would like for us to, to try to find an answer for you, please send it to podcast at mtnvw.org. That's podcast at mtnvw.org. And we would love to hear from you.
Growing up in Peoria, Illinois, we didn't need a humidifier in the summer. It was already humid enough. In the same way, we don't need people with a gift of discouragement. This world, it's depressing enough as it is. In next week's episode of Jesus Changes People, we're going to meet people who felt it was their duty to reign on every parade and to do so in the name of God. When that happens, it always ruins the parade. And honestly, it doesn't reflect too well on God either. Thank you for listening to Jesus Changes People, a podcast that seeks to uncover the real Jesus and what it means to be a modern-day follower of Him. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better and to become more like Him. If you'd like to connect with us, you may do so by leaving comments or questions for us wherever you listen to this podcast. Help us spread the message by leaving us a review. And if you prefer electronic mail, you may send us feedback at podcast at mtnvw.org. That is podcast at mtnvw.org. Thanks again and have a great week. Yeah, it would be, it'd be just too sad to not have outtakes. Got to have some. Though they are 1,000... I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just about to say, oh, we're going to be really sad if we have no... Torchbearer Internet... I've already messed it up. (laughs) Today, Torchbearers has 25 centers located around the world. We have one here located right here in Colorado. Torchbearers International was born out of the devastation... (laughs) Seligman. When it comes to matter of faith... (laughs) And also features guests who discover... And then drop in the silence. Everybody does the cha-cha-cha. Good. I'm good with that. Nice. Woohoo!